Do you talk about it with your friends? Do you dare talk about it with your grandparents? The Sealed Section, talking everything sex for everyone. Welcome back to the Sealed Section, Shaggers. Today I have Chloe Berger on to talk about all of women's health issues that can affect our sexual function. So thank you, Chloe, for coming on. How are you today? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks for having me. That's no worries at all. Thanks for coming on. Are you able to please introduce yourself? So I'm Chloe and I'm a physio. So I've been a physio for about four years now. And so originally um, when I first started working as a physio, I was working in private practice and just treating, you know, all the normal things that people think a physio does, giving lots of sports massages and doing lots of rehab. Um, And then I moved back home to Port Ferry um, and started working at the hospital there. So just doing general rotations. So then when I was sort of, you know, rotating through the wards, I started getting an interest in women's health and um, then, yeah, done a bit of extra training in that. And now that's what I want to work in, you know, in the future. Yeah. Awesome. What made you want to get into physiotherapy that specialized in women's health? Um, So I guess when I was sort of doing some ward cover on the maternity ward, I saw lots of women who, you know, had just had babies and they were all, I guess, very overwhelmed. And I know a lot of people probably know what it's like when you first had a baby. It's such a crazy time and everything changes. And I think um, people don't really realise the magnitude of the physical changes that you can get, you know, when you have a baby and they don't realize how that can affect you for the rest of your life if you don't treat them, you know, properly. So trying to, I guess, make women's pregnancy and post-birth journey as positive as possible is, you know, what really made me want to get into it. And then the other part of it was that I've had, I guess, some of my own women's health issues that, I felt like I've been to a lot of GPs and other health professionals that didn't really understand my issue and even didn't really know where to refer me to someone who would be able to help me. And I think the only time I really, I guess, fully understood the condition that I have was when I did this extra training in women's health physio. And, you know, despite seeing so many people in the past, I couldn't really, I guess, get the treatment that I needed without, you know, without even anyone telling me that I could go to a women's health physio. So don't even know what we can do and how we can help people with lots of these conditions. I feel like so many people wouldn't even think of a physio for so many issues, especially the ones we're going to talk about today. Like people, it wouldn't even cross their mind that a physio is an option. Yeah, definitely. I think the field is growing heaps. So there's lots more of us now, which is really great. But in the past, there wasn't even enough physios. There wasn't even, you know, many in the town that I live in. At the moment, there's no one in in Port Ferry where I live that does what I do. And, you know, even in Warrnambool, which is a bigger town close by, there's only three physios there that really treat these conditions. So given, you know, there's probably a hundred other physios that treat normal things, it's, well, not normal things, but things that people think of as a normal physio. Um, It's, yeah, crazy that people don't really, really know about it. Yeah, definitely. So one of the most important muscles, I guess, for sexual function is the pelvic floor. Are you able to explain why it's important to sexual function and how we can look after our pelvic floor? 
Yeah, so hopefully most women know what a pelvic floor is, but I know that some women wouldn't, especially young women. Um, So I'm going to just explain it like you don't know what it is. So the pelvic floor is a sling of muscles underneath the bottom of your pelvis. So it's kind of like a small hammock that runs from your pubic bone at the front to your tailbone at the back. And with the pelvic floor, what it does for a woman is help support our pelvic organs. So our uterus or our womb, um, the bladder and the bowel and hold them up. And this is especially important when we have increases in abdominal pressure. So these things, you know, everyday things like laughing, coughing, sneezing, lifting something, running, jumping, all of those kinds of things. So it stops those organs from dropping down into our pelvis because it's, you know, the pelvis as a bony structure doesn't have a bone on the bottom to hold those organs up. Those muscles do that job. So the other thing that they also do is control our ability to urinate and defecate and our ability to achieve orgasm. So they're really important muscles um, that, you know, if we don't look after them can cause us so many problems in our lives. So I, sometimes I try and explain it to patients um, or clients as the pelvic floor, if you can imagine that our pelvic organs are like a boat, so a boat that's moored in the dock. So these, you know, organs are sitting there in this boat and then they've got moorings so that attaches to I guess the side of the dock and that kind of helps hold them up so those moorings are like the ligaments that are in our abdominal cavity and so we've got ligaments that help to hold up our um, pelvic organs but we've also got obviously the pelvic floor underneath and the pelvic floor if you can imagine you know in this mental picture that I'm trying to create it's a little bit easier usually when I draw it for people but the the pelvic floor is the water that holds the boat up so if the water is low and the tide's out then we're pulling on those moorings so we're pulling on the the ligaments that are inside our body and so those ligaments obviously stretchy and they're vulnerable to tearing and things like that as well like any other ligament in our body so if we don't have that muscle support underneath then basically we're causing you know a lot of stretching of those ligaments and you know childbirth is another thing that will stretch those ligaments we'll talk about that a little bit later as well um just being pregnant causes um you know stretching of all those tissues where we need our pelvic floor to help us in that situation so you know it might not be as important for a woman who is not pregnant or isn't going to have a baby but it's you know really important for for people who are pregnant or have had children Um, And so that, I guess, contributes to the ability for us to maintain our continence and and achieve orgasms and things like that. Um, I think that's super important too. I know myself, jumping on a trampoline does not go well for me. I'm like, and it makes me realise how weak my pelvic floor is. Like, I need to work on that. And it's not until I'm like in that situation, I'm like, oh, oh my God, I do not feel like I have control like I should. Is there like... Yeah, definitely. Lots of people do experience that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I didn't... I would have been young too, like early teens and it was happening. I was like, oh my God, I don't think this is meant to happen. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I guess um, lots of people do experience that and it's almost normalised that like women will leak. There's a thing where it's like all of the pad brands, you know, basically market to us that we, we... 
our pad because we're going to leak at some point in our life, which is true because lots of women do. But at the end of the day, you don't have to. And we can treat, you know, incontinence or leaking with, you know, lots of things. And one of those main things is is pelvic floor exercises, which I think you were about to touch on before. Yeah, yeah, I was. So like what exercises should we be doing to strengthen our pelvic floor? So I guess everyone, every woman should be doing Kegels or, you know, everyone's hopefully most people have heard of Kegels or or pelvic floor exercises. But I guess when we think about those exercises, not everyone knows how to do those exercises properly. And what we do know is that about 40 or 50% of women who experience incontinence or any kind of leaking are actually not doing those pelvic floor exercises correctly. And even, you know, 10 to 20% of women who don't currently experience any leaking are actually doing them wrong. So what we're trying to do with our pelvic floor exercises is lift up. So squeeze that muscle to lift up and support those organs. And what some women do instead of that is actually bearing down. So pushing down like you're going to do a poo or something like that. So they're doing the the opposite action of what they need to do when they're trying to do their exercises. So I guess that's why it is really important to get checked by a pelvic floor physio if you do have any symptoms because, you know, there's a there's a 50% chance you're, you're actually doing them wrong and you might actually be making that incontinence worse by trying to do these exercises. And the other thing is that even if you don't have symptoms, if you are pregnant or you're planning on having a baby, getting checked will just make sure that you don't develop any incontinence or any symptoms in the future because, you know, we do know that lots of pregnant women um, have issues with this. And I guess we know that lots of women who aren't going to have a baby or aren't pregnant have other symptoms that they don't even associate with um, their pelvic floor. So I guess We'll talk about a lot of those things as we go along, but one of the one of the things that's so important is that if you do have issues, finding someone that can help you and, and treat them is what you know us women's health physios aim to achieve. I guess. Uh, you said uh, you mentioned Kegels. Are you just able to explain what they are, just in case anyone doesn't know? Yeah, definitely. So Kegels are just pelvic floor exercises. So Kegels are like squeezing your pelvic floor and there's different, I guess, types of Kegels that you can do and lots of different like fads that people go through, like, you know, the yoni eggs and all of that kind of stuff that people talk about. But at its most simple and basic form, a Kegel is just squeezing your pelvic floor. So um, that act of squeezing it, activates it, turns it on and strengthens it. Um, But what we do know as well is that some women have an overactive pelvic floor and doing Kegels over and over and over and over and over again just perpetuates that problem. So that's where I guess one of my little pet hates in some Pilates classes is that every woman in a Pilates class is instructed to squeeze their pelvic floor mm. so they're all you know if you've ever been to Pilates yeah, before you'll hear the instruction like yeah. you know <laughs> suck your belly button in towards your spine and squeeze your pelvic floor um but what we know that you know maybe half of the people in that class aren't doing that correctly Mm -hmm. so if we're getting told to do that over and over and over again and we're doing it wrong over and over and over again every single week or every single time we go to pilates like we know that that's going to be detrimental to our you know sexual function our continence all that kind of stuff and so like those Pilates instructors really don't have the the training or the understanding to to realize that not every woman should be squeezing their pelvic floor on every contraction and every person's pelvic floor is different so if you don't have it assessed properly by a physio then how are you going to know if um what you're doing is right 
Yeah, that's really interesting because I've done many Pilates classes in the past and every time they tell you to engage your pelvic floor. Yeah, it's kind of mind-blowing. Like where I've had some clients in my classes say, you know, oh, why don't you tell us to squeeze your pel- our pelvic floor like our other Pilates instructors do? And I'm like, well, that's why because I know that not everyone's going to squeeze it, right? And the other thing that I also know is that most women, if you don't have any symptoms, your pelvic floor turns on automatically. You don't have to think about it. It's an involuntary muscle. So if your pelvic floor is working correctly, you shouldn't have to think about it when you squat or when you, you know, do something that's going to, I guess, increase the pressure. So, you know, if you're a normal woman without symptoms you shouldn't have to be prompted to squeeze it all the time and so that's where I think you know not everyone needs to do that so why should I be telling everyone to do it and so that's yeah yeah, I guess my reasoning why I don't do that in my Pilates classes but I know that lots of other Pilates instructors do yeah yeah that's really interesting are you able to delve into what health conditions can affect sexual function especially for vulva owners Yeah, definitely. So there's a whole nother podcast about, you know, what pelvic floor conditions affect men, Um, but I'm not going to go into that on this podcast, but there is so many. And again, it's the same thing. It's probably even worse than women. Like men don't even know where or how to get treatment for their conditions. But um, what we'll go through, I guess, is, you know, the the pelvic floor conditions that affect women. And so um, there's, I guess, a bit of a big sort of umbrella term that maybe people have heard before which is called pelvic pain and so pelvic pain affects about 20% of women and it can be caused by so many different conditions um, and it is yeah just a big umbrella that basically encompasses lots of different things so I guess we'll go through a few of those things that maybe are you know a bit more common and people might have heard of before and then others that maybe you'll be like wow I did not even know that existed um but the other thing is that there are so many women that experience this that actually don't even know that they're experiencing it or don't know why or what's wrong with them or what condition they have and I saw like an interesting article on Mamma Mia the other day um about this and about how they surveyed you know the whole Mamma Mia office about whether women had one of these conditions called vaginismus and um it actually turned out that one third of the women in the office experienced vaginismus which is crazy but Mm. also we know that approximately 20 percent of the whole population experiences pelvic pain so that kind of makes sense given that maybe they just had a little bit more than the normal population in their office but I guess you know a lot of people wouldn't have even heard the term vaginismus before. yeah a lot of people wouldn't um, have. so yeah it's crazy that that so many women have it and people don't actually know what it is um so I found that quite interesting and I guess the with the media now being a little bit more women-centric and lots of these I guess big companies like Mamma Mia that are basically focusing on all these issues mean that we'll talk about them more and and more people will know about them. So that's like an amazing thing that is, I guess, happening in our time, which is really great. Um, But I guess maybe I'll I'll start with vaginismus since I've already mentioned it. So basically what vaginismus is, is that it's involuntary contraction of the muscles, um, the pelvic floor muscles, basically. So the muscles around the opening of the vagina. And there's, I guess, no abnormalities that can be found 
in that woman's genital organs. So that tight muscle contraction makes any activity that involves penetration painful or impossible. So I guess, you know, we hear of women that have vaginismus talk about how they can't use the tampon because they just can't get it in. And then, you know, they they have trouble having sex and lots of different things um, because of the vaginismus and because of, you know, it's involuntary. You can't control these muscles contracting and you're not trying to do it, but it just happens. And I guess we don't really know why it happens, but we do know that it is more common in women that have had, you know, sexual trauma things like that because you know it's maybe an involuntary response to that trauma that your body's just contracting and saying no like nothing should go into this area that kind of thing so I guess um with that a pelvic floor physio can really help to treat that condition and you know we've got so many different techniques that we use and one of them is just educating the woman on on what it is and you know even just knowing that it's not it's something dangerous and there's not something wrong with you can help um, to relax those muscles and then the other things that we can do is actual manual release of the muscles so we do internal exams as women health physios and we can manually like massage them just like you'd massage your your leg um, to release those um, tight muscles as well as you know using a program of dilators so they're special little um, techniques to basically increase the the size of your vaginal opening and usually we do it with you know meditation or mindfulness so that you can actually relax your body while something's penetrating your vagina that sort of thing so there's so many things that we can do for someone who has vaginismus and there's so many women that recover with um pelvic floor physio and can have sex just like a normal person so it's not something that you have to put up with for the rest of your life and I'm, might be something that you have to manage for the rest of your life but it's not going to be something where you can never have sex ever again because of it so and I guess you know one of those things that a lot of men maybe probably haven't heard of it either and maybe just having that education with your partner about what it is and what we can do to help it can can really help with that sexual function um, in vaginismus as well. Yeah, I think that's a really important conversation for them to be having too, especially if you do have it before having sex and trying to work together through it and not getting frustrated. Yeah, definitely. It can be, I guess, a very frustrating condition for, for a partner to to um, manage as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's, you know, one of the one of the big ones of pelvic pain that people don't know about. But there's another one that we call vulvodynia, which maybe p- even less people have heard of. Um, so this one is where you've got pain, burning and discomfort in your vulva that can't be linked to any specific cause. So the pain can be triggered by touch, um, but it can also just be triggered by anticipation of touch or anticipation of sexual activities, um, that kind of thing and again can be common in women who've experienced sexual trauma and it can be you know in one area specifically of the vulva or across the whole vulva um and it I guess is just like a hypersensitivity so I don't know you know some people will have experienced surgery before so I've had surgery before on my hip so when I had surgery on my hip they um nicked some of the cutaneous nerves so the nerves that supply your skin and when they do that you get numbness so lots of people have experienced numbness after they've had surgery and then what happens after that is when the nerves kind of regrow is um, you actually get painful touch before you'll get normal sensation and normal touch so that's what we call allodynia so it's the same as vulvodynia but it's just 
not on your vulva. So, no. you know, on my leg, I had allodynia so that when you touched my leg where that nerve was damaged in the surgery, it was painful. So my brother used to like slap me on the leg because it would be really sore. And so one of those things that brothers, annoying brothers do. Yeah. But I guess um, <laughs> when, when you've got that on your vulva and, you know, it's there for no reason whatsoever, really, like not you haven't had surgery on your vulva, um, it can be really kind of hard to understand. And so, again, we don't really know what causes it um, and there is no, I guess, specific cause that, that has been found yet. Or So, yeah, I guess, you know, women that have it just have to learn how to manage it, same with vaginismus, and women's health physios can help with that as well just by diagnosing their condition um, and giving us, you know, women education about it as well as, you know, starting treatments that desensitise the vulva. So we use, I guess, what's called graded exposure. So the more you touch something that's painful or, or hypersensitive, the less sensitive it becomes. So it's about, yeah, grading that exposure and also not being fearful of that pain. So when we are grading that exposure and when we are touching the vulva more, we're not afraid that there's something wrong or something damaged with it and that helps um, the brain to realize that you know that touch isn't dangerous um in in that I guess context so that's where I guess again that conversation with your partner is going to be really important for for women who have or experience vulvodynia and um, there's some other techniques we can use such as electrical stimulation or, or TENS that can help to desensitize those nerves around the vulva as well. So there's lots of treatments that we can use and, and you know, the vast majority of women with vulvodynia who get treated by a women's health physio will recover and, you know, may experience it on and off at different times in their life, but they'll know how to manage it um, and know how to, to decrease that pain and be able to live, I guess, a normal life with vulvodynia. Yeah, I think that would be such a hard condition to live with too, especially when it's not like there's a specific cause and it's, it would be so frustrating having this pain that you don't know why it's coming on and it would just be – I can just imagine how yeah. Yeah, frustrating, especially going to doctors if they don't know – like I can imagine if you just don't see the right yeah, doctor that definitely. refers you to the right place, it would be a very frustrating condition to be living with. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, there's in that Mamma Mia article that I was talking about, some of the women talked about going to their GP and their their male GP telling them that being really tight is a good thing and that, you know, they shouldn't be complaining because, you know, they're, they're really tight. So that's awesome. Like, are you serious? Like you're saying this to a woman who that can't is- even put a tampon in their vagina? Like, oh what? My gosh. It just shows that, I guess, that the GP or that doctor I'm not saying that all doctors like this but whoever whoever that woman visited really has no idea like what vaginismus is and how to treat it um and it just yeah it would be so frustrating to be a woman in that situation that you've gone to a doctor who said that exactly um but yeah (laughs) I was just gonna say sorry you go um you know tightness isn't does not do anything really for the woman's pleasure and such it's all like male centered yeah just, exactly right yeah. yeah yeah and I guess um with, with lots of these conditions there will be doctors that don't know about them and don't understand them but there will be other doctors that you know are all over it and will send a referral off to, to a women's health physio so I'm not trying to say that all GPs are uh, don't have any idea about these conditions because mm. lots of them do but I guess there's a role as well for, for educating more GPs about them too yeah definitely 
another condition that a lot more women have probably heard about um, as there's being a lot more conversations, endometriosis. Are you able to delve into that one a bit? Yeah, so endometriosis, you know, we recently just had endometriosis week or month or whatever it was and I saw lots of articles about it um, on my Facebook feed and things like that. So hopefully more women know about this. And, again, it's super common, so probably more common than, you know, some of the other conditions I've already spoken about. So this is, I guess, where the tissue um, that lines your uterus grows outside of your uterus. So you know, the endometrial lining that we shed when we have our period every month starts growing elsewhere. So it can grow sort of anywhere on your abdominal cavity, you know, around your ovaries, around your bowels, all of those kinds of things. So basically it causes pelvic pain um, as well as, you know, painful periods and symptoms when you ovulate, as well as you can have bowel symptoms, um, nausea, fatigue and fertility issues. And, you know, lots of women have experienced endometriosis and have gone through the process of it taking, you know, on average 10 years to get a diagnosis of endometriosis, which is really crazy. Um, And I guess maybe doctors aren't, you know, are thinking uh, sometimes I guess when a woman presents in their teenage years, putting it down to, you know, puberty and hormones and that kind of thing. So, you know, you've got painful periods because your hormones are changing and you're young. So we'll put you on the pill and that'll fix it. So a lot of women do get put on the pill and it does fix it Um, and they actually don't have symptoms, which is great. It's awesome that they don't have symptoms, but then they might come to being, you know, in their mid-20s or later and wanting to have a baby and then they come off the pill and then they, you know, get all their symptoms back and realise that it's been a bigger issue than what they thought and they actually do have endometriosis. Um, so that's where I guess, yeah, the diagnosis of endometriosis is really hard because the gold standard and the only way to completely know that you have endometriosis is by having surgery. So we can make a clinical diagnosis without um, surgery, but at the end of the day, we don't definitely know that's what it is without going in there and seeing the tissue growing elsewhere. But the problem with having surgery is that oftentimes if we remove this tissue, it will grow back because it's a systemic problem. Like if you you don't, you know, get rid of it and then it just goes away. So that's where also some of these surgeries are dangerous because if your surgeon isn't experienced enough to be able to remove this I guess scar tissue and an endometrium where it's not supposed to be then you can get damage to your bowel and damage to other organs and things like that so you know as a woman I wouldn't be going into having endometriosis surgery you know without really considering other options as well and really having a good gynecologist who can you know manage it properly and I know we have a really great gynecologist here in um, Warrnambool that specializes in endometriosis and he doesn't often recommend surgery and you know there's a lot of reasons for that and every woman's different and some women will need surgery I'm not saying that every woman doesn't but um I guess yeah there's a lot of other management techniques that people don't know about that we can use um that will yeah I guess conservatively manage manage the pain and issues they experience so yeah as a women's health physio again we can address the muscles that will spasm in response to the pain and in response to the extra growth of these tissues where they're not supposed to be growing. So oftentimes our pelvic floor muscles will be tight as well as some of the muscles around our hip and pelvis. So we can release those manually, as I was talking about before, as well as, you know, do stretches and exercises for those muscles um, that will help maintain the flexibility of scar tissue and mean that, you know, you're experiencing less pain. 
And one of the other really good things we can use for endo is um, TENS, which I did speak about before as well. So that's electrical stimulation that helps desensitize some of the nerves um, around this area. And, you know, we can use massage and meditation and all of those kinds of things because what we know about pain and what we know about pain in any condition is that pain only can be created if you've got a brain. Like if you did a lobotomy and took your brain out, you couldn't actually experience pain in the sensory experience that we experience it. So I guess from that perspective, there's so many pain management techniques that we can use that use our brain to actually help control it. And, you know, the nerves might fire, but the brain is the one that interprets those things as, as dangerous. So if we can teach the brain to think, you know, yes, our nerves are firing, but no, there's no danger, then that's one of the things that, you know, physio really helps with. Um, and, you know, I guess it, that education and, and knowing what your condition is and what's caused it and what we can do to manage it can be really helpful for, for women who have endo as well. I know myself, I've had, I had a um, laparoscopy, but it was for because I had had um, pelvic inflammatory disease. And then when they went in there, mm-hmm. they were like, oh, there's, um, there was a buildup on my bladder. However, then the results mm-hmm. came back inconclusive, which was so frustrating because I had gone in mm-hmm. and I was like, I just wanted to know an answer. Like, was it because I have endo in my family? Like, my mum has it really bad and her sisters. So I was like, surely mm-hmm. I'm just waiting for it to happen. And then, yeah. Um, it was so frustrating then for it to be inconclusive and then to actually like, you know, going through with the surgery. Luckily there was nothing, um, bad with the pelvic inflammatory disease, but then, cause we were also going in mm-hmm. for, to look for endo because I was always getting pain, especially like when I wake up in the morning, um, just the, this pain in my, when my bladder was like full and it was just super painful and then pelvic pain during sex. And then once you feel that pain, you just tense up and you. then every time you are having sex, you tense because you're like, oh, I'm just waiting for this pain to happen. And so I imagine going to a physio yeah. too would help relax that and try and overcome that tensing and the pain. Even me now, I'm just like tensing my body. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I can imagine that no one ever really suggested you go to a physio. No, actually, I think my gyno in Warnable did say if you need, we can go to a pelvic floor physio. I think that's what um, I think he did. However, I must yes. admit, when because that was a few couple of years ago, and I was like eighteen or something, and the thought of that, I was mm. like, oh, I just like freaked me out because I'd never heard of it, and I was like, didn't know how comfortable I would feel doing that. But it's purely because I had never heard of it before, and I wasn't educated on like there was even a thing. Yeah, definitely. And that's the thing, like, if you don't know about it and you don't know what's going to happen when you go and see a women's health physio, of course, it's going to be something that you're going to be scary. And also the other thing is that, you know, it costs a lot of money. We don't really have like, you know, we do have a public system for women's health physios, but the public women's health physio that I um, work with has a waiting list of about two or three months. So, you can't get in very quickly if you need one, um, if you can't afford to go privately. And the other thing is, you know, it, yeah, it does cost a lot of money if you're going to go and see a private women's health physio, but, you know, the benefits that you can get from it are, you know, probably, well, I would hope outweigh the cost of, you know, a few consults with a physio. Yeah. And I guess what we, yeah, what we, what you were talking about before as well, like pain with like a full bladder and things like that. So that, 
um, can also be, you know, chronic UTIs or urinary tract infections and, and bladder pain. So you can get, you know, infections in your bladder as well as inflammation of your bladder, which cause, you know, that painful urination, painful, you know, feeling of when you've got a full bladder as well as feeling generally unwell like any other kind of infection. So, you know, the, the issues there can be addressed from by a women's health physio as well as, you know, your GP and everything else to actually treat the infection um, can be can be addressed too. So, and as you said, you know, if you've got pain anywhere in your pelvic area, all those muscles are going to spasm and, and be really tight in anticipation of that pain. So most people that have experienced, you know, chronic UTIs might have some degree of, you know, pelvic floor dysfunction or, or issues with the muscles in their pelvic floor. Um, whatever. Uh, how do you, is it PCOS or PCOS? I don't know. Lots of people call it PCOS. Lots of people call it PCOS. It kind of okay. depends on what you want to call it. But yeah, I usually call it PCOS. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, so that's polycystic ovarian syndrome. So that's another one that lots of people probably would have heard of because it does, yeah, affect a lot of women and it's a hormonal disorder. Um, causing those enlarged ovaries and small cysts on the outer edges of your ovaries. And again, you can get symptoms such as irregular or no periods, um, excessive body hair, um, weight gain, acne, hair loss on your head, um, mood changes and fertility issues. And, you know, all of those things are really going to affect a woman's life. And yeah, definitely. we know that a lot of GPs will manage PCOS really well and a lot of women that have PCOS will, you know, live their lives as normal until they, you know, want to have a baby and get pregnant and then they might need fertility treatments and things like that. But I guess there's some women who have PCOS that will experience lots of pain and, again, physio can address those musculoskeletal causes of the pain. So, you know, those spasming of the muscles around the pelvis and, again, talking about pain management techniques in PCOS um, and, you know, even just directing women to, to good GPs who we can work with um, to manage the pain and manage the medication side of things because oftentimes, you know, the GPs might not know about a certain medication that we know about because we've learned about it in our training and we can send a letter to your GP and say, you know, can we try this medication and see if it helps and things like that. So that's where I guess working with a good GP is really important for a women's health physio as well. And another um, condition that we have here is the pelvic floor dysfunction and how do we say this word, hypertonicity? Yes. Yep. That's it, hypertonicity. So that's what I was yep. talking about is that increase in tension or tightness of the pelvic floor. Yep. So you can have hypertonicity or a, a really tight pelvic floor without having vaginismus. Um, so it's, I guess, a separate entity in that it's just that you've got a really tight pelvic floor, but you can still, you know, penetrate your vagina so I guess that tight pelvic floor might result in different things it can actually result in incontinence which seems really strange um, because usually it's a weak pelvic floor that makes you incontinent but if if the pelvic floor can't if it's always sitting at its highest level of contraction so if it's always on then we can't actually get the up and down that we need for um, being able to urinate so the pelvic floor has to relax for us to be able to to pee and so if it can't relax then you can actually get urinary retention as well so you know you're not able to go to the toilet when you need to um and you know lots of other issues and I guess we can have the opposite of that as as weakness of the pelvic floor or even just 
the pelvic floor doesn't know how to coordinate itself properly. And I guess that kind of comes under that banner of pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, and so if the muscles don't know how to coordinate themselves properly, that can cause so many different issues. It can actually even cause issues with, you know, being able to, to go to the toilet to do poos. Like it's just, you know, you can be constipated just because of your pelvic floor. It might not be any other reason. Um, so that's where like a lot of people don't even know that, that your pelvic floor affects constipation and that constipation then in turn affects your pelvic floor and your continence. So one of the things that we often talk to women about um, when they come and see us is actually, yeah, your bowel habits and, and whether you're constipated or not and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's really, that is really interesting because I would never have associated with my pelvic floor with constipation or anything like that. I'd instantly just think, you know, my stomach or like there's something with, you know, yeah, what yeah, I'm eating and different things. Yeah, yeah I wouldn't have, wouldn't have even thought yeah. of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. I probably honestly only ever really associated it with more like incontinence with, um, like urine and stuff like that which I think leads into the like the next question is so many women don't even think of it as an issue that's going to affect them until it does affect them and I can imagine how uncomfortable it would be especially for a condition like that are you able to explain um you know what incontinence is and how many women it affects and if we can prevent it from happening yeah, for sure. So incontinence is, yeah, one of those things that so many women do experience at some point in their life. So approximately, you know, 38 to 40% of women will experience incontinence and half of those women are under 50. So, you know, most of those women are going to be sexually active as well. So um, incontinence is one of those things that, yeah, is, as I was saying before, kind of sold to us as as that's normal for women. Like women leak, that's what happens when you've had a baby or that's what happens, you know, when you get old, you just leak. But that's not, I guess, what happens in some other countries where they have greater access to pelvic floor physios and, you know, different, I guess, yeah, medical treatment models for incontinence um, where they use, yeah, a lot of pelvic floor physio to treat them. So what types of incontinence is there? So we've got quite a few different types of incontinence that we treat as women's health physios. So there's urinary incontinence, which, you know, everyone knows about leaking urine, but there's also incontinence that can be faecal, so leaking of faeces, um, and then also flatus, so like not being able to hold in a fart, which seems really strange mm-hmm. and doesn't seem like something that <laughs> would really affect your life that much, but um, it was interesting recently on the project, they had um, a woman who'd experienced um, birth injury and she had, you know, flatus incontinence or incontinence not being able to hold in her farts. And she said that it's really hard, like when she, you know, goes to work and she doesn't even know that she's going to pass wind basically. And so she'll just be doing that, you know, while she's working and people are like, why is this woman farting all the time? Like how strange, like it yeah. just is something that you wouldn't even think of that would affect your life. Um, so yeah, it's one of those things that, again, you just, something that if you've never heard of it, you wouldn't even think that would, that it would happen to someone. Um, so yeah, those are the three different types, I guess, of incontinence, but then there's types of incontinence that we can talk about in the reason someone's incontinent. So stress urinary incontinence, um, can be caused by basically, um, increases in abdominal pressure that we were talking about before. So coughing, 
laughing, sneezing, running, <laughs> jumping on the trampoline, that kind of stuff. So that's what the one that probably most people know about, know quite a bit about and, you know, know someone who's had it or have had it themselves, that kind of thing. And so with that, the, the main thing that we treat stress, urinary incontinence by is with pelvic floor exercises and strengthening. And so that's where, you know, seeing a women's health physio and getting your pelvic floor assessed so that we can see how strong it is is the first step and then making sure that you know how to contract your pelvic floor correctly and then making sure that you're doing those exercises regularly enough to, to actually make a difference is, is how we treat stress urinary incontinence and there's you know really good evidence for for that working and it being a successful treatment for stress incontinence and you know we know that yeah there's level one evidence which is the highest level of evidence in any medical research so that means that there's you know lots of reviews and lots of treatment and randomized controlled trials that show that that's really effective so that's where i guess you know is it almost our strongest area is is stress urinary incontinence um, as a women's health physio but there is the other type of incontinence that you might not have heard of which is called urge urinary incontinence or having like an overactive bladder and so Women who have an overactive bladder have what is, I guess, called, you know, leaking when they need to go to the toilet. So it's that thing where you might rock up to your house and put the key in the door and just putting the key in the door makes you need to pee because you pee every single time you come home. Or same with, you know, like getting in the car and going somewhere. You might pee every time before you go somewhere and then you associate that with going to the toilet. Therefore, every time you need to leave the house and go in the car, you need to pee because your body's just decided that that's what happens before we go in the car. So um, that type of incontinence can be caused by a number of different things and it can be just that it's because we've trained our bladder like that so it's a habit but it can also be a medical condition in that your um the muscle that surrounds your bladder so your detrusor muscle that muscle just can involuntarily contract kind of like our pelvic floor muscles can involuntarily contract which we've been talking about earlier so that can just contract even when our bladder is not full so how it's supposed to work is that our bladder becomes you know three quarters full and you'll get the first urge to to go to the toilet so you might think oh i kind of need to pee but I could wait another 15 minutes or another half an hour and then I could go so it's kind of your body doing a small contraction of your bladder telling you yep it's getting full and then you know if you don't suffer from urge urinary incontinence then you will you know defer going to the toilet for that 15 minutes or that half an hour and then you'll get another urge so it'll be stronger and you'll be like yep I definitely need to go this time so you'll go to the toilet and that's it But what happens with women who have an overactive bladder is that they get that detrusor contraction and that really strong contraction that says, I need to go to the toilet right now at any level of bladder filling. So it could be your bladder is like 10% full or like 20% full. And then your detrusor just goes, you need to go to the toilet and it will contract. And so (laughs) if you have OAB or overactive bladder like I do, um, you'll just get a really strong urge to to go to the toilet and you won't be able to hold that urge most of the time because, you know, it's your bladder's just contracting on you. So I have had an overactive bladder for like as long as I can remember. (laughs) My mum used to say to me like before we would go places, do you need to go to the toilet, Chloe, like as a kid? And I'd be like, no, no, I definitely don't need to go. 
there's no way I'll need to go in the next hour before we get to the destination. And then we'd get in the car and we'd be like 20 minutes down the track or however long it was. And I'd be like, mom, I need to go to the toilet. And she'd be like, I asked you whether you needed to go and you said you didn't. And then I'd be like, but I do now. <laughs> and so the most frustrating thing because we'd always have to stop to go to the toilet yeah. um, on long car trips. And still, even now, like I can't get through a car trip without stopping and going to the toilet at some point through it. But um, what I guess I found is I went to like a few GPs and was like, you know, I need to pee like a lot, like all the time. And they were like, okay, let's test you for diabetes and see if you've got diabetes. And, you know, let's test you for urinary tract infections and check that you don't have an infection and, you know, all these things. And so we ruled all of those things out and they were all normal. And then they were like, okay, well, there's nothing wrong with you. And I was like, but like, there is. <laughs> There's definitely something wrong with me. Yeah. And so it was one of those things where I was like, okay, well, obviously there's nothing wrong with me and that's just the way it is. Like I'll just have to put up with this. Um, and then as I was saying at the start of the podcast, I now went and did this course in women's health physio and they started talking about overactive bladder. And I said, like I thought in my head, oh, my God, like this is what I have. And so just kind of like light bulb moment where I was like, wow, I did not realize that I actually have a medical condition that causes this to happen. And yeah, it was just something where I was like, great. So there's not something wrong with me, like in that I just like can't hold on. So it's funny because I was at my friend's um, 30th a a couple of weeks ago and I was walking through the toilet and um, someone grabbed me and said, can you take a picture of us? And obviously by this point I really needed to go to the toilet. And so I said, oh, no, like I've just got to go to the toilet. I'll come back and take it afterwards. And then the the woman like looked at me and was like, what, like you can't stand here and wait five minutes or, you know, one, two minutes to take the picture before you go? And like my best friend whose party it was, was like oh no like when Chloe needs to go she needs to go like just let her go to the toilet and obviously because she knows you know what it's like for me (laughs) she was just like just go to the toilet don't worry about the picture and um one of the things that really aggravates women who have overactive bladder is alcohol and obviously Mm -hmm. I was drinking alcohol at this party and so whenever I go out and drink alcohol I need to pee a lot and so do pretty much all women but I guess most women who have a couple of drinks can hold it. Like they can stand in the toilet line and hold it. I'm one of those people that can't. So I'm the person that goes to the men's toilets to go to the toilet because I can't hold it and I can't wait in the line and things like that. So it's, yeah, I guess I, different to, so to the normal like need to pee. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. And, um, yeah, I was yeah, just going to say in that setting where- with drinking, it'd be so hard going to like those lines are not good. <laughs> no, definitely. And um, yeah, I have a really embarrassing story that actually I was waiting in line for a club once with my brother and my brother's best friend and they still tease me about it. I was probably, I don't know, 19 or 20 or something um so I was pretty drunk at the time and we were waiting in line for this club and I said you know I really need to go to the toilet and they were like oh like the line's gonna be another half an hour or something like whatever and so we got to like almost the end of the line and um I just could not hold it anymore and I peed myself in the line to a club and like being you know a woman standing there with your brother and your brother's Mm -hmm. best friend and they're like did you just like pee yourself and I'm like yep that just happened (laughs) and you know it's one of those things that you can't do anything about and they still tease me for it but I can imagine um, it's because I have an overactive bladder (laughs) yeah Um, Um, and you know it's actually a medical condition (laughs) yeah I've actually had multiple friends where that's happened to them especially at festivals 
they'll be walking to the toilet yeah. and they just drop to the ground. They're like, I, I can't make it. Or they're in the line and they're just like, no, nah, it's happening. I can't stop it from happening. But lucky. Yeah. yeah be, and, and that's, yeah, what it's like. Yeah, I can imagine. I'm, yeah, it'd be so hard. There'd be nothing worse than that feeling when you stay there. Like, I can't, I can't hold it anymore. Yeah, and I guess that anxiety about not being able to go to a toilet mm. is something that, like, lots of women who have overactive bladder experience. But I guess, anyway, I should probably go along to the end of the story where, like, I'm 99% of the time continent now because I don't drink lots of alcohol like I used to. <laughs> but also because I know what my triggers are. So, there's lots of different triggers for overactive bladder. So alcohol is one of them that I talked about, but there's some really strange things that you wouldn't even think of. Like caffeine, that's pretty obvious. If you drink lots of coffee or tea, you're going to need to pee. But um, what I didn't really realise is that I used to drink a lot of peppermint tea and yeah. peppermint tea is actually a bladder stimulant. And so oh. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm drinking peppermint tea, so that's not going to affect my bladder. So I'd have like three cups of peppermint tea a day, but then I'd get to the pool like parts of the day where I'd be like oh shit I really need to pee and then I'd be like why but it's because I was drinking so much peppermint tea um which just seems really random and you know there's different people will have different triggers as well and some of those triggers will be I guess um situational like I was talking about before like one of my triggers is running water so that's another thing it's a little bit hard because you know every time you run a tap or every time you go to get in the shower like makes you need to pee which is not great um, but just knowing what your triggers are can help and knowing like to avoid those triggers. So then you're not getting that bladder, I guess, contraction all the time, all day, every day. Um, and then, you know, even changing the amount of fluid you drink can help. So I used to be one of those people that drank like six litres of water a day because of an unknown reason. I just was thirsty. <laughs> so I just keep drinking lots of water and that doesn't help someone who's got an overactive bladder. I can um, imagine. And then I guess, you know, so when I went to this course, they were like, you know, women come to us and say like, you know, they've got urinary frequency or they need to go to the toilet like 30 times a day. And then we look at their bladder diary. So oftentimes a women's health physio, if you've got incontinence, will make you fill in a bladder diary. So it's basically all the water that comes in for two days and all of the urine that comes out for two days. So you have to like measure it, which is a real pain in the ass, but it helps us to figure out what's wrong. Um, and so you might do that for two days and you'll come back with your bladder diary and there'll be like six liters of fluid going in per day. And then the women's health physio is like, maybe we just need to stop drinking so much and that will help. <laughs> and, you know, it's one of those things that some women, even we were talking about in our course, drink lots of water so that they don't get hungry. Yeah. Um, and it's, I guess, one of those things that people do to stay thin and, yeah, yeah. um, it, it can cause, yeah, lots of, I guess it can cause continence issues because you just literally drink much water. Yeah. Which yeah. is quite interesting. Yeah, that is. <laughs> is there any other types of incontinence that you wanted to touch on? Yeah, and so I guess the last one is just mixed incontinence. So where you can have stress urinary incontinence so that you might leak on coughing or jumping, but you can also have urge incontinence at the same time. So then you've got triggers with your urges and so we can manage that. 
um, with lots of different techniques. And again, electrical stimulation can be something that we can use for urge to try and decrease the urge and decrease that sensitivity of the bladder. And the other thing that we can use um, different medications to treat urge, um, which we just can discuss with your GP and discuss whether they're appropriate for you or not. Um, so I guess with with those things, there's so many things we can do and so many women that um, will then, I guess, be managed really well. So like my incontinence is managed well at the moment and I don't really experience much incontinence. But when I was younger and I didn't know all these things, I did used to experience incontinence like, you know, as I was talking about before. So, you know, I've never had a baby and I've experienced it. So it's not just one of those things that, that yeah, happens after you've had a baby as well. I feel like and it's definitely a condition that a lot of young women would think, oh, no, that's only going to happen after I have children, potentially. Like they wouldn't even yeah. think of it being something that will affect them. Yeah, for yeah. sure, definitely. Uh, yeah, talking about um, pregnancy and birth, are you able to talk about some of the conditions that can affect women who have given birth? Yeah, so there's so many conditions which maybe like a lot of people might have heard of as well because there's, you know, birth. Um, childbirth stories and birth trauma and injuries are like discussed a little bit more, especially as you get older as a woman and you know people who've had a baby. Mm. Um, but I guess you can have birth trauma that can be physical trauma, so trauma to your perineum or the skin and the muscles um, between your vagina and anus. So those perineal tears um, or pelvic floor muscle tears um, can, you know, cause lots of issues if they're not um, if they don't heal properly. So, you know, there's different types of tears that you can have, like a first or a second degree tear. They might not stitch that and they'll just let it heal back up. And, you know, most of the time it'll heal normally and you'll have no issues, but some people's don't heal correctly. Um, and then, you know, your third and fourth degree tears that are a bit more serious and can actually then involve your anal sphincter. Um, that's where you usually will have to get that repaired with stitches. And sometimes, you know, it may, you know, if... If it's repaired correctly and if it heals really well, 90 to 95% of women who've had a third or fourth degree tear will not have any continence issues. So, you know, having a tear in and of itself, it doesn't mean you're going to be incontinent. Um, if you have the right follow-up care and you get stitched up correctly by, you know, a, a trained person, then you're going to be fine. But it's not something to be, you know, the end of the world about um but there is i guess women who you maybe deliver in more rural settings or with people with you know not enough trained doctors as well that you know might be repairing these tears and or even you know not classifying them correctly and repairing them wrong and that's what i was talking about um the the story that was on the project recently so it was about birth trauma and about a woman who'd had a third degree tear that was classified incorrectly and so it was stitched up incorrectly because it wasn't identified um, by the doctor and so she had I guess you know feces and things leaking that shouldn't have been leaking and things like that and you know it really affected her life and she also got an abscess and an infection that wasn't identified and lots of different things that went wrong that shouldn't have went wrong um, because I guess the medical practitioners that you know, treated her afterwards weren't trained enough to recognise the injury correctly. And so that's where, you know, it can end up as like, you know, something that affects your life completely. Um, having faecal incontinence is, you know, 20 times worse than having urinary incontinence. Um, yeah, definitely. It's, it's just awful. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I guess the other thing that can can happen when you give birth as well is that you might need to have an instrumental delivery. So you might need to to have your baby via a forceps or via a vacuum. And so that helps the baby come out. So if the baby's gotten a little bit stuck, you might need a bit of help getting it out. And um, those instruments carry a much greater risk of perineal trauma. And I guess I think that a lot of women are not educated on that before they're given an instrument or, you know, told that they need an instrument. And so they don't know that they're at risk of these things after they've given. Um, And that in itself is an issue because if you're at risk of, you know, perineal trauma, then you're at risk of having a prolapse, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So um, those kinds of things if you're not aware of them, there's plenty of ways that we can prevent you having a prolapse after you've given birth. But if you don't know that you're at risk of a prolapse, how are you going to prevent it? That's, I guess, the main thing that, you know, a women's health physio can help with in that situation. So um, I guess the other thing that can happen with an instrumental birth is not just a tear of your pelvic floor, an actual avulsion of your pelvic floor. So this is where your pelvic floor is kind of ripped off the bone. So you can have like an an avulsion fracture in your ankle. So you might roll your ankle really badly and you've ripped the ligament off the bone. And then usually they'll put you in a cam boot, like one of those walkers for like two weeks and then it heals back up and you're fine. So that's great. But when you have an avulsion fracture of your pelvic floor, um, it comes off the bone, but there's no way to, to make it heal back up. So at the moment, we don't have any surgical techniques or any treatments that mean we can heal that fracture. So that just means that women who've experienced a fracture of their pelvic floor, it, it's fractured. We can't fix that. So one side of their pelvic floor may not work for the rest of their life, which is, you know, a massive thing yeah. um, for women. And, How you know, we didn't actually know them? this injury existed. Yeah. So, yeah, this injury has only really been recognised and studied in the last, you know, 10 years. So it's a really new thing that, you know, we didn't even realise was happening. So we knew that some women had the, didn't have the ability to contract one side or both sides of their pelvic floor at all. So you might do a pelvic floor assessment on a woman, or I might as a, as a women's health physio, and I might say, squeeze your pelvic floor and nothing happens. So it doesn't squeeze at all. They're not bearing down and they're not lifting up. It just, there's nothing. So when you can't squeeze your pelvic floor at all, that's obviously an issue because you're going to have lots of incontinence and you're going to have, you know, so many different issues from that because, you know, you might also have difficulty achieving orgasm because your pelvic floor can't contract um, and different things like that. So there's, I guess, a lot of, I think, a massive role for physios to prevent pelvic floor um, avulsion tears because, you know, if we don't prevent them, they're really like quite hard to treat afterwards. And, you know, we can live with them and we can manage your continence in lots of different ways and we can we can treat it. It's not the end of the world. As, as I said, you know, all of these things, none of it's the end of the world and all of it can be treated. But what we'd like to see is less women having them because yeah. that just means that they don't have to manage it for the rest of their life. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, and then I guess what I was talking about before is prolapse as well. So having a pelvic organ prolapse where 
part of your pelvic organs enters um, the vagina. So it might be a part of your uterus has fallen into your vagina or a part of your bladder or a part of your bowel has come into, into your vagina. So the symptoms that you can get with prolapse are like a heavy dragging symptom, like feeling so in your pelvis. So like maybe when you go for a long walk, it just feels really heavy down there and you don't really realise why. Um, and then you can also have continence issues. So you can be incontinent or you can have urinary retention where you can't um, same with you can have like constipation or, or things or your feeling of not emptying your bowel completely if you've got a bowel prolapse because where it sort of comes into your vagina that the feces is stuck there and it can't get out because there's it's you know stuck in your like kind of in your vagina but there's also like obviously the the outer layer so it's not there's not actually feces in your vagina but there's just a little pouch of your your bowel sitting in in your vaginal cavity so um 50 to 75 percent of women in australia who've had a baby will experience some stage of prolapse wow that like is just a huge number yeah that's massive and so a stage one prolapse is really doesn't really affect your life that much. As I said, you might go for a long walk and feel a bit of heaviness and dragging and then you stop the walk and your pelvic floor recovers and it's not fatigued anymore and then it lifts up your, your organs enough that they're not in your vagina anymore. So I guess, you know, if we catch it when it's a stage one or a stage two, you don't really, it doesn't affect your life massively. Um, but if it gets to the point where, you know, you're stage three or you're stage four and to the point where you can actually see pelvic organs like at the entrance to your vagina without actually even, you know, palpating in your vagina, that's when it really affects people's lives. Um, and that happens, you know, and when that does happen, usually women get that surgically repaired. And so that's obviously an option. You can have surgery for sure, but you can't have surgery until you've finished your family. So if you're wanting to have more kids, you have to wait until after that. Um, and also you often, they try and wait as long as possible. So um, because there's some different side effects and issues with having prolapse surgery as well. Um, it doesn't always work. And there's different, I guess, ways to repair it that, you know, might suit some women and might not suit other women. And, you know, some women might have heard of the the pelvic mesh. Have you ever heard of, like, issues that happened with pelvic mesh surgeries? No, I've never heard of it. So some people who got their prolapses repaired with this special type of mesh. And so it basically, like, slinged up the the organs. So the mesh kind of is what they use to stitch all back together I guess um without you know going into the medical details of how they do it but basically that mesh um became like a foreign body in some women and so their body like rejected it and so then they've got chronic pain and they've got you know chronic pelvic issues from the surgery afterwards and so these meshes are now banned you can't use them anymore but um they there's so many women that have had prolapse surgery with this mesh and um have to get the mesh removed and you know it's yeah completely changed their life just by having yeah a prolapse repair that that didn't work I guess yeah um so yeah some of these things you know as a young woman you don't think about but yeah you know when you think about the fact that 50 to 75 (laughs) percent of women will experience some form of prolapse um if you go and see a gynecologist that doesn't know what 
you know, conservative measures there are, or, you know, most, the vast majority of gynecologists now would know to refer to a women's health physio. Um, but say you went to a GP even and they just referred you and was like, yep, you need to get surgery for this um, prolapse, then, you know, that you might not even know that a women's health physio could help you manage it to the point where you don't actually need surgery anymore. And um, there's, there's a few studies that showed that pelvic floor physio is just as effective as surgery um, in some cases. So that's where, you know, if you've got a prolapse um, after you've given birth, then, then we can help. And then the other thing is that we can actually help in preventing prolapse. So prolapse is a whole lot, the rates of prolapse are a whole lot lower in some other countries, such as Scandinavia and France. And in those countries, they've got um, different ways of giving birth. So they don't use instrumental delivery anyway near as much as we do in Australia. And so the reason that, you know, we get to the point where we need to use instrumental delivery is often because the baby's too big. So if you're predicted to have a big baby, like a baby that's over four or 4.5 kilos, then um, you're going to be at risk of, of having issues with your pelvic floor and at risk of needing an instrumental delivery. And same with if you're an older woman giving birth for the first time. So if you're, you know, over 30, like, you know, women who are 35 and older um, having a baby, you're at much greater risk of, of damaging your pelvic floor when you have a vaginal delivery. So in those women, it might be about discussing with your doctor um, that, you know, you're at high risk because you're going to have a big baby and you're older and, you know, whatever other risk factors you might have. And, and then thinking, okay, well, in that situation, because I'm such high risk, maybe I'm going to choose to have an elective caesarean. And then you're going to protect your pelvic floor um, from those issues. And I guess maybe elective caesarean rates are different in other countries. And here in Australia or in a lot of places in public hospitals, we want to keep elective caesarean rates low and that's because they cost money. So a vaginal birth is a lot cheaper than a caesarean for the hospital. Um, and I don't think like economic reasons should be why we're not giving women caesareans. Yeah, exactly. Definitely um, not. Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, just access to a theatre as well is an issue in a public hospital sometimes. So, you know, access to, to going to surgery for a C-section is not always available in a public hospital um, because, you know, there's other, other things that need those theatres more. Um, and so they want to keep the, rate, keep the rates of C-section low so that all the theatres aren't taken up giving people C-sections. Um, so there's a lot of economic and political reasons why women maybe don't have access to things that I think they should have access to. Um, but, you know, if women are educated on that, like if you went to your obstetrician and said, you know, I'm at high risk of this, this and this, I want a C-section, they can't say, no, you can't have one. They can encourage you to, to try a vaginal delivery and they can, you know, say, we think this is the best option for you. But if you're educated and you go in there and say, actually, I've decided that I want a C-section, there's, they can't say that you can't have one. Um, and a lot of women, I think, feel pressure to not have a C-section as well, just for like, mm. you know, because it's the easy way out. And, yeah, you know, well, all those definitely. People say about C-sections. Yeah, there's definitely <laughs> that little... Um, I'm trying to think of the word, but like that pressure that, you know, you shouldn't do it. That it's, the, it's that, yeah. you know, it's a bad option. It's 
almost like, you know, cheating your way out and you need to go through the vaginal birth for you to have really given birth, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which is just ridiculous because, you know, in those situations maybe it's not like medically essential that you have a cer- like a C-section, but it's like probably medically recommended. Like it's, you know, one of those things that if your baby's big, like there's nothing you can do about that. That's not your fault. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you'd so much yeah. rather do that than have a lifetime of issues after that and just yeah. going through well, like, I would I'd yeah. choose a C-section every day of the week if I was faced with some of the issues that women experience after birth. Yeah, definitely. Does a C-section present with any issues itself too? Like because then you have to cut through all like the abdominal yes. muscle and things like that? Yeah, definitely. So C-section recovery, people say, is often a lot harder than vaginal birth recovery because, yeah, um, yeah you have to cut through those muscles. And there's also, of course, risks of having a C-section and, you know, there's risks of having, you know, the epidural anesthesia, there's risks of, you know, infection, all of those kinds of things that your doctor will explain to you and talk to you about and how likely those risks are. But I think when you're going to choose any medical decision for yourself, you have to weigh up risks and those risks that come with a C-section are quite low. Like the rate of infection for a C-section, I don't know what it is, but it's like, you know, in the like maybe 1% or something like that. Yeah, That's just pulled out of the top of my head. I'd have to actually look it up. But, you know, then the rate of, you know, a third or fourth degree tear might be 20, 30, 40, depending on what your risk factors are. Like the rate of having that damage to your pelvic floor is going to be the risk of that is going to be higher than the risks that you have from having a c-section in my Mm -hmm. opinion so that's where you do have to weigh up the risk benefit and that's where like someone like me who's been trained in these things can talk to you about that so if you were a pregnant woman and you came to me you know in the middle of your pregnancy or towards the end of your pregnancy and you said to me what what are my risks of having a vaginal birth I'd look at all those things and I'd assess them and I'd maybe talk to you about you know what the risks are and and what things you can chat to your obstetrician about and, and things like that. Because oftentimes your obstetrician is thinking of your pelvic floor last. So your obstetrician's main, um, I guess, main priority is number one, that the baby is born alive. Number two, that you're alive to look after your baby. Well, those things are probably equal. So they obviously want your baby to be alive and they want you to be alive and that's their main priority and that's the way it should be like they shouldn't be thinking about your pelvic floor first but what my job is to think about your pelvic floor first so my job is to I guess protect your pelvic floor and I guess give you education and advice on how we can minimize the damage to it and you know that's not your doctor's main concern so they're going to advise you of the best option medically but they're maybe not going to advise you of the best option for your pelvic floor yeah so that's why it's probably really important to see various different um like practitioners like seeing your gp obstetrician pelvic floor physio all those different so making sure that you're making the best decision for your whole body and educated on everything yeah for sure and some people think like a lot of this stuff is a bit overwhelming and they'd rather just not know. And what I say to that is that, yeah, you might not want to know about it now and it might be anxiety-inducing and, you know, make you scared or worried about giving birth. But 
like I'd rather know about it and know ways to prevent it rather than go in blind and just hope for the best. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Definitely. There's there's this kind of thing that some women are just like, I'd rather not know and we'll deal with it later. Like that's so not my philosophy. But that is some people's philosophy and that's fine. Um, probably stop listening to this podcast if that's your philosophy. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I think too, if we start, if we're educated about it from a young age, we know that these are things, it will probably take some of that anxiety out too, because it's something that people talk about and you just know that that's something that could occur. And then you do take the right steps to try and prevent it. Whereas like, obviously if you're pregnant and then women start coming towards you be like oh this could happen this could happen of course you got to shit yourself because you've just it's all been thrown on you and you haven't been like educated about it properly yeah for sure and it's one of those things where my sister recently just had a baby so I've got a gorgeous little niece but I like basically went through all these things that I'm talking about in the podcast but in you know a lot more detail over nine months Um, and she was like you're making me so scared to have a vaginal birth like I just don't want to do it I just want to have a cesarean you know lots of things like that and you know I was like to her well you're actually low risk like your baby's predicted to be medium size small to medium you're young like you're under 30 you're you know not of certain ethnicities that are at higher risk like Asian women are at way higher risk because their tissues are different to ours. So they're actually less flexible tissues. So, you know, lots of Asian women are at risk of perineal tears because of that. So anyway, you're you're Caucasian, so that's in your favour as well. And, you know, all these things that, you know, we've talked about this and that and we've talked about what you can do during your labour to decrease your risk as well. And so she actually had a really good first vaginal birth she had barely any tearing she had like a graze that didn't need to be stitched um and she got you know through her labor in like well her the active part of her labor in like five hours you know she had such a positive experience even though I'd told her all this stuff and she got her you know really anxious to start with she actually yeah came out the other side with you know all of these really positive experiences from her birth yeah yeah Are there any other like post-childbirth changes that can affect women's sexual function at all? Yes. So there is definitely other changes, which lots of people will talk about it, like hormonal changes, the changes that you have, you know, from breastfeeding, um, you know, lifestyle changes, the fact that you're like got a full-time job milking yourself to feed your baby feel like you're a cow that sort of thing um you know I was talking to my sister and she said that she read something that said that looking after a newborn is actually like 2.5 full-time jobs because you have to work like all day and all night um and that's just crazy like to be expected to do 2.5 full-time jobs like what the hell (laughs) literally um (laughs) So, yeah, and, like, you know, people say it takes, like, a village to raise a child. Like, lots of women don't want to accept support or don't have support or things like that, but, like, you really do need support when you first had a baby. Um, And the other thing is just self-confidence and body image issues as well. So, you know, your body changes quite a bit after you've had a baby and those things can mean that you're not as confident to have sex and, you know, you don't feel the same way so the other thing you know is the physical changes as well to your tissues so your tissues have stretched you know your pelvic floor has to stretch like 400 times its normal length for the baby to come out so you know 
if you were to kick a footy and tear your hamstring, it would usually tear at about 15 times its normal length. Mm-hmm. So, you know, your pelvic floor can stretch 400 times without tearing wow. it all. That's insane. Like, that's just crazy. Yeah, that is insane. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's designed to, to do that, but at times, you know, it doesn't work and it doesn't stretch and it will tear. But as I said, we can fix all those things with women's health physio um, and we can manage all those things. But all those things will affect your sexual function and, you know, your partner might not understand any of those things either. Um, and, you know, even talking to a women's health physio about those issues and about the fact that maybe you've gone back to having sex and it's painful, what we can do to manage that pain, we have to, I guess, diagnose what's causing it, number one, and that's what we can help you with and then give you strategies to manage it. So, you know, there's lots of different strategies that we can use, different lubricants, different hormonal creams, different, you know, positions, so many things that that we can talk to you about um, to make sure that, you know, you can get back to having sex um, comfortably and pleasurably after you've had a baby. Yeah. Now probably moving on to like the later stages of life, menopause, which obviously affects majority of vulva owners. Are you able to explain, you know, what menopause is and how it can affect our lives? Yeah, so menopause, um, lots of people would know about, but it's, I guess, the natural stopping of your menstrual cycle or having your periods and marks the end of your fertility. So you can't... um, have children after you've been through menopause and it results in decreased estrogen so that hormone that female hormone so when you've got decreased estrogen you can experience symptoms such as hot flashes night sweats heart palpitations headaches insomnia fatigue um bone loss or like you know early osteoporosis um even vaginal dryness and vaginal atrophy are symptoms of menopause so atrophy is where your vagina like the walls of your vagina thin and dry out and become inflamed. And so you can imagine, you know, being a woman and then going through this change in your life and then you're having sex and you're like, ow, it hurts and it feels like my vagina's tearing and it's all inflamed. Like, why is that? Um, A lot of people don't think about that. And no wonder a lot of women, you know, don't want to have sex when they're going through menopause, um, when they've got all these things happening. But we can manage all those things. As I said before, you know, an estrogen cream can help like thicken the walls of your vagina and mean that sex is more comfortable. The right lubricant can mean that, you know, you don't have to deal with the, like the dryness and, you know, talking to your partner about making sure that you're completely properly aroused before penetration so that, you know, you're not, yeah, just trying to, I guess, start sex when your body's not ready for it um, and that sort of thing. So, there's so many things there that we can address and talk about for sure. Is there any other things within menopause that you want to talk about? Um, look, there's a lot of things that women go through, definitely, um, but it's one of those things that women often don't receive help for as well. They're just like, oh, I have to put up with it. I'm going yeah. through menopause. Like, yeah, exactly. That's just life. Yeah. But, you know, you can go to your GP and you can get hormone replacement therapy to help you through um, that change. And so you can, yeah, have you know, levels of hormones that you take that mean that it's not such a sharp change so it's more slow and graded so that you can cope with it a bit better. Um, And you can also, yeah, talk to a women's health physio about lots of those things um, so that we can, yeah, make it the most positive experience um, we can be. And, you know, the other issues that 
you know, we've kind of touched on as well are psychological and emotional issues that come mm. with these changes in our lives. And, yeah. you know, women's mental health is like really affected by a lot of these issues. And, you know, even just talking to someone who understands them, I'm not a psychologist and I don't, you know, claim to be, but just knowing that it's normal and knowing that there's things that we can do to help um, can really help your mental health too. Yeah, because I can only imagine if you're someone who's had a really healthy sex life and you've really enjoyed sex and you've, or, you know, been having, say, sex every week and then all of a sudden you're going through these changes and your body's not having it or you just can't have sex the way you used to, it would be so much to process. And especially within a relationship where you have been able to, you know, have been having sex all the time to then having to change that, it would just... you know would put so much I suppose pressure on yourself too like why is this happening to me you know why can't I just do it how I used to and that that psychological effect would be massive too especially if it's been such a big part of your life for sure and I think there's also like a role to talk about relationships and women's health conditions because you know some of these conditions can actually mean that you know relationships end and like you you know people break up over this kind of stuff or people experience infidelity over this kind of stuff because women you know can't have sex the way they used to their partner's not getting their sexual needs filled so they go elsewhere or they decide to end the relationship when like you could go and spend you know however much it costs to see your local women health women's health physio for one or two consults and that could like fix your problems like it's you know (laughs) crazy that people don't know about it yeah definitely and I think it shows how much communication there's lacking in relationships and just in general and especially that because sex is so penetration centered people don't even think Mm -hmm. about looking at different ways to have sex and not having sex revolve around penetration because sex is so much yeah. more than that. But people find it so hard to come to terms with that that they can have sex in different ways. Yeah, for sure. And I think, like, I guess, you know, this is a separate issue, but highlighting, like, the LGBTIQ, like, population and how they have sex. Like, hetero people can have sex in those ways too. Exactly, um, yeah. Yeah, it's just one of those things that hetero, maybe hetero women and hetero men don't really like I guess accept it or don't really you know like it's just something that they haven't experienced or they don't know about so it's unknown and it's like oh my god like could I do any of those things I don't know yeah Yeah, exactly I think because I've had the lack of education it it's you know they do fear it a bit and there's unfortunately so much stigma around some of those different ways to have sex especially in a heterosexual couple like if it's anything that even like penetration towards the male they're like oh no you know that's that's gay we can't do that yeah. but it's like no it's not <laughs> that's just a social construct <laughs> you can like yeah. you know you have we have we can experience pleasure all over all over our bodies in so many different ways yeah so we should be For if we sure. can do that why don't we look to you know exploring those things like our bodies wouldn't if we're not meant to do it and feel pleasure there we wouldn't be able to feel pleasure there that's so true yeah yeah why do you think that especially women don't feel comfortable reaching out for help or even speaking about like these issues that we've talked about today I think like 
that again is a social construct and it's the society and the culture that we live in. And I think, you know, especially in Australia, like, I don't know, there's other countries I think that are a lot more sexually liberated than we are. Um, And I think, you know, in Australia it's all like hush-hush and it's all like, you know, heterosexual couples are the norm and that's what, you know, people should be having sex like. And, you know, if anyone's to present something else in a conversation that's, you know, a bit different or a bit shocking, people are like, oh, my God, like so-and-so is doing that. Um, Even, you know, in American culture, like I was watching the other day um, the Hills reboot and um, when I used to watch the Hills, like it was just, you know, one of those guilty pleasure things that you watch. But they were actually talking about... um, Brody, who's on it and his um wife I don't know what her name is I've forgotten but anyway um Brody Jenner so he and his wife supposedly have like a non-monogamous relationship um and the gossip that all of their friendship group like went on with about the fact that they have a different relationship to the rest of the couples in the group um was just like ridiculous so I was just like why are they like basically condemning people for their relationship choices like I don't really get that like it does not make sense at all to me but they're all like oh my god like there must be something wrong in their relationship if you need to look outside of it for sex and I'm like really though like I don't think that's a problem but you know that's my views but it's not like the I guess norm and it's not the views that a lot of other people in this country have or you know in lots of countries um but I think people feel so uncomfortable talking about it because no one talks about it. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, I was at my um, grandma's 90th. So my grandma had it at the church hall, and a lot of that side of our family are quite religious. And um, I was talking to one of the ladies there about my sister had just had her baby, like two weeks prior and she was talking about how long um she was in hospital for and she was like you know how long did she get to be in hospital for and I was like oh two nights and she's like oh really two nights I thought sometimes I only get one and I was like no you know at our hospital it's two nights for a vaginal birth three nights for a cesarean and then like everyone looked at me when I said the word vaginal birth and like because you know lots of people say like natural birth or you know they don't say the word vagina and everyone just looked at me and I was like Okay, yep. So I just said the word vagina out loud at my grandma's 90th and everyone thinks I'm weird. So this is good. Awesome. <laughs> it's crazy. You can't even say it's the word crazy. vagina. Like I remember growing up, every time I would say it, I'd just be like, oh, didn't even want to say it. I was like, oh, it's like this gross word, which it's is so a gross wrong. word. Yeah. Yeah. And then obviously. And I mean, it's the same with penis. That's a bit yeah. of a gross word, but. Yeah, exa- <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it is, and people don't feel comfortable saying it. And it's funny though, even at a 90th birthday setting where majority people there have had sex, have all got a penis or a vagina or whatever they've got. Mm. Why can't you, like, why aren't we allowed to talk about the actual anatomy and say those words? Yeah, exactly. They're anatomical terms, not dirty words. Like, no, <laughs> exactly. It's literally your body. Yeah, yeah it's crazy, isn't it? But yeah. I guess, you know, the more we talk about it and the more, you know, media, places like Mamma Mia and The Project and things like that cover this kind of stuff, the more people get comfortable with it. And I think that's just such a great thing for women and even men and relationships in general and yeah, I think things are hopefully on the up in this area. Yeah, they, they definitely are. Like people are talking about it more and more, 
which is awesome. And it just has to hopefully keep keep pushing forward. <laughs> but like, yeah, for if sure. People keep having conversations like these and listening to podcasts and reading and especially in like this type of the podcast where they might not necessarily look for this information it's put on them like oh I haven't heard of this and then they listen which is like awesome because so many people don't find out these things unless they're looking for that information themselves yeah exactly right and you know there's things that I definitely didn't think of before I was a women's health physio um and now I'm like, oh, there's so much. Like we could just go on for hours. Yeah, I can imagine. Is there anything else that you want to touch on or any other important issues? Um, no, I just think that, you know, seek out a women's health physio. Now that you've listened to this podcast, if anything that I've said today you've like identified with or you've thought, you know, this is just something I have to put up with because I'm a woman. Um, just go and find a women's health physio. There's plenty of us around and you might have to travel, you might have to pay some money, but I think it's worth it um, for, you know, your sexual function and your relationship, you know, happiness and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, if you don't know where around, then no wonder you're not coming to see us. But if you've heard this podcast and you thought, yeah, actually that might be really helpful, then I think just take the plunge and do it. And, you know, we'll never do something that you're not comfortable with. If you're not comfortable with having a vaginal exam, we won't do one. We can do other things. But, you know, obviously that's, you know, something that gives us a lot of information about your issue. But, you know, if we don't do that until the 10th session or the third session, it doesn't matter. We can work on other things. So don't be afraid that we're going to force you to do something that you don't want to do because that's, you know, we're all about, you know, informed consent and talking about what treatments we're going to provide for you. And, yeah, it's not something to be scared of because, you know, you go to the GP and you get a pap smear. Having a vaginal exam by a women's health physio is probably less painful than that. So, yeah, it's one of those things that, you know, if you don't want to do it, that's totally fine. But if you do, it could, you know, change your life, I guess. Yeah, which is awesome. So where can my the shaggers find you? So um, on Instagram, I am the.lady.physio and... Yep. From there, you can find all my, I guess, info. So I've got a website, I've got a Facebook page, um, and I, yeah, will be treating in Port Ferry. Um, so if you live around here, then come and see me if you want, book an appointment. I haven't actually opened my appointments yet because I'm actually just starting my new business. So just putting the final touches off it and hopefully, yeah, opening my appointments in the next week or two. Um, and I'll be posting lots of, you know, information on my Instagram and, and talking about a lot of these things. So if you want to follow along and learn some more things along the way, that'd be awesome. Yeah, awesome. It's so exciting. It's going to be such an exciting journey for you two opening up in Port Ferry, which is, I'm, I'm so excited about as soon as I saw it. I was like, oh my gosh, yes, this is going to be amazing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think, you know, the more people, We'll talk about it and and can have access to it because as I was saying the the public physio in Warrnambool has a two month two to three month wait list the one of the private physios you know you can't get an appointment with her until May at the moment one of the private physios in Hamilton you can't get an appointment with her until June so I think like there's such a need for it and yeah. um, I'll probably be busier than I thought but yeah <laughs> yeah I know that will be good well thank you so much for today and talking about all these issues it was a super important conversation and 
I think a lot of people will get an insight on things that they one might not have even known existed or didn't even think of going to a women's health physio to treat these issues. So thank you so much. No worries. Thank you, Emily. It's been a pleasure. I just want to say a massive thank you again to Chloe for coming on and talking about what it is being a women's health physio and all the different various conditions that can affect women and their sexual function in particular. Thank you for coming on and informing us about not only these conditions but how they can be treated and informing us just about women's health physio because I think it's something that a lot of women don't even realise is out there for them to utilise and that all these different conditions can be treated by a women's health physio so thank you so much for spreading that awareness so thank you as you know shaggers if you have any comments questions or stories feel free to reach out either through my instagram at the sealed section or my email emily duncan at the sealed section.com please leave a review as i would love to know what you're thinking and subscribe on whatever platform you use to listen to these podcasts so you always keep up to date. So thank you, Shaggers, and I'll see you in a couple weeks.